those things in the back of your mind. And you can open tonight in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. And uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will make sure you have one um, to follow along with us in our Bible study. Now, my initial desire was to finish Galatians tonight, but we'll finish Galatians next week. The Judaizers, which are one of the main characters in our study of the book of Galatians, or what in the modern era we would call legalizers or legalists, were those that sought to take the concepts, the rituals, the customs of the Old Covenant and mix them with the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we find in the New Covenant. Taking the laws and the ordinances of God from the Old and taking the person and work of Christ from the New and kind of meshing those two things together to form kind of a new religious code that calls itself by Jesus' name. Now, Galatians that we are studying was written to both confront and correct the effect that that doctrine had had upon the churches in the Galatian region. Paul calls this mixture of grace and law a false gospel. He calls it a perversion of the truth. And in this final section of this short letter, Paul is taking what he's taught them about this in the first four chapters, and he's applying it now to their Christian experience. When Jesus was walking on the earth with his disciples, the Orthodox Jews of his day, the Pharisees, these men that were decorated, that were religious, that, that had it all together in their appearance outwardly, they constantly would follow and scrutinize and keep a close watch on everything that Jesus did, watching his behavior, watching what he did. They would accuse him constantly. He eats without first washing his hands. He heals people on the Sabbath day. Healing constitutes work. He's a Sabbath breaker. He eats with publicans and sinners, common folks. He's in fellowship and communion with sinners. He transgresses the traditions of the elders, constantly scrutinizing, constantly finding fault with the things that Jesus did. And upon one such occasion, when the Pharisees were hassling Jesus over the practices and things that he was doing, Jesus turned to his disciples, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 1, and he warns them, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, leaven, as you know by now, is yeast. It's what a baker would mix in or knead into a batch of dough and, and, and in order to cause the bread to rise or the dough to rise and to become fluffy. And the principle of yeast or leaven is that you only need a small amount of this living matter to be added to a recipe and it will work its way through and it will affect the whole of that which is being leavened, if you would. And Jesus uses this concept of leaven in a batch of dough to talk about the doctrine, the practice, the principles of the Pharisees, these Orthodox Jews. And, and notice that he says to them, with, with a word of warning, he says, beware. He, he doesn't just say, hey, what they're doing is like leaven, do you see that? But he gives them a very personal warning, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the fact that he gives them that warning to those that are the true disciples of Christ is because he knew, Jesus knew, that they would have the propensity to be affected by the hypocrisy that the Pharisees were bringing into the religious system of the day. Now the leaven that Jesus warned about there in Luke chapter 12, and that Paul even spoke of in Galatians chapter 5, this leaven of the Pharisees is the thing that affected the Galatian churches. And it's the thing that Paul is dealing with as he writes to them this letter. It's replacing a true relationship with the living God with laws, customs, 
rituals, and traditions. Now, everything that Paul has dealt with thus far in his letter to the Galatians has dealt with the Christian's relationship with God. How being under the law affects a man or a woman's relationship with God. And also, how being free in the grace of Jesus Christ, how that affects our relationship or a person's relationship with Christ, with God. And that's what Paul has dealt with thus far throughout the book of Galatians. As we cross now into chapter 6, Paul is going to now deal with the Christian's relationship with other Christians. How being under the law, the old covenant, the Old Testament system, how that affects a man's relationship with his brother, with his sister. And also, how being under grace, under the covenant of grace through Jesus, how that affects our relationships among ourselves. When a man or a woman is measuring the quality of their religion by the strength of their own performance, or by the standards of their own convictions, then automatically they're going to begin to judge other people by the same standard or by the same rule. A type of spiritual hierarchy will begin to form in their mind. They'll begin to evaluate the spiritual qualities of others by observing their service. By looking at their profession, or the strength of their creed, or how they practice the, 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 you know, the religion that they profess. Then they'll begin to qualify their own spiritual value based upon the observations that they've made by looking at the spirituality of others. And then they'll establish a system of spiritual measurement that more or less is based upon the performance of religious duties in external things. They'll look at someone, they'll look at maybe a whole group of people, and they'll ask the question, well, how often do they pray? What does their prayer life look like? How well versed is that person in scripture or in biblical precepts? How broad is their understanding of Bible doctrine and, and their application of it in their speech and in their lives? How often and in what capacity does that person serve God or is involved in their church or their place of worship? What are the priorities of the person's life? How do they balance out their church life with their family life and in their service and then, you know, their hobbies perhaps or the place where they hold pleasures or, or things that they do recreationally? They'll begin to ask or, or observe the function uh, of the holiness within their family life. And they'll look at the liberties that they take in their personal life. And, and everything by outward observation, measuring people and, and, and assessing the quality of their spirituality by what they see outwardly. And the result of that is that a system begins to form where, first of all, everybody is looking at each other and taking cues from one another, you know, and, and looking at, uh, you know, the kind of things to find out what is expected or acceptable unto God. And it's a system that's completely bound in external thing. It looks at actions and behavior, but it completely eliminates or leaves out the motivation of the heart and, and, and why people are doing what they're doing. It ignores that. And the problem with that system is this, is that it places the emphasis or, uh, of the quality of someone's spirituality upon man and man's performance in spiritual duties rather than upon God and what he has done or what he desires. And in order to maintain that system once it's established, it becomes crucial to constantly observe and to watch each other. The atmosphere in a fellowship and an assembly will be one of judgment. You have to look and watch what everyone is doing, and it becomes impossible in an environment like that to love one another. You cannot sincerely love someone with unconditional love at the same time you're scrutinizing their behavior in order to qualify or justify your own. Anything that anyone does that doesn't conform to the accepted standard or the acceptable behavior model that is kind of put forth and maybe silently agreed upon in the you know, unwritten covenant, anybody who transgresses that 
is branded, maybe even silently, maybe publicly, they're branded as unacceptable or as profane. Somebody who perhaps smokes a cigarette or someone who, you know, maybe uses foul language or hasn't maybe gotten victory in in, in a certain area of their life. They haven't attained unto that level of observable holiness. And so therefore, they're not accepted in the thing. It's the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus speaks to you and to I, his true disciples. He says, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is putting on an outward appearance to cover up what's really going on inwardly. The leaven of the Pharisees. Legalism within any church or any assembly will always produce that type of environment. And the environment in the Galatian churches had taken on this pattern. Back in chapter 5, verse 15 of Galatians, we get a hint of this as Paul speaks to them. And he says, after telling them to love their neighbor, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Evidently that this type of a situation had taken place that love had left the Galatian church and it had been replaced by this attitude of constant criticism and constant biting, constant consuming the one of another. Again in verse 26 he makes allusion to this by saying let us not be desirous of vainglory or vain conceit provoking one another and envying one another. All signs that their Christianity had gone completely external. Everything was all about the assessment and evaluation of people's behavior. And they had completely neglected the inward things of motivation and the work of Christ within the heart. They were desirous of vainglory. That means empty show. They were guilty of appearing to be something so holy that people would look up at some and say, wow, if only our lives could attain unto that level of holiness, then maybe God would be with us the way he's with them, so and so. And Paul says it's vain glorying. They're glorying in the flesh. Provoking one another by saying things like, you know, I could so easily do that to you right now. I could say, well, you know, I have to tell you, while I was up this morning at 4 a.m. praying for you, I'm provoking you. Do you understand? You're going, oh man, he's holy. He's holy. He prays at 4 a.m., you know. No, 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 I don't pray at 4 a.m. Don't don't get that idea, you know. But you see how it works when it becomes a system of externals. We can use religious duties and religious substance to begin to provoke one another into this leaven, spreading it out, saying, well, if you could attain unto this level of righteousness that I have, then perhaps you would have the connection to God that I have achieved, you know. And it produces what? Vainglory and envy. He says, envying one another. It's like, wow, they're so spiritual. It's amazing to me that God in the Old Covenant, when he gave the law to Moses, and and right after, it's Exodus chapter 20, right after the giving of the law, he said, listen, when a man builds an altar unto me, he is not to build steps to ascend up to that altar. And he says, lest his nakedness should be exposed. And you read it and you know, you could just pass over and say, well, everything they did was a little strange, you know. But realize that that is written like that for a reason. Nakedness in the Bible always speaks of vulnerability. And God is saying that when you worship me, don't ascend into a place higher than the ground level. Don't think of yourself as, oh, well, I'm so heavenly. I'm, I'm ascending unto the thing. Because God says, because what will happen is that your vulnerability, your nakedness will be exposed. And I have discovered that any man, any woman, any person that elevates themselves spiritually into a place where they say, look at me. I've attained to some level of spirituality. God is real good at pulling the rug out from under that high horse. And your vulnerability will be exposed. I promise you that. Because God's not interested in the outward. He's interested in what's taking place in the heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. They elevate, they boast of their own religion, their own achievements. 
But they, he says, measuring themselves by themselves. They qualify their spiritual maturity based upon what everybody else is doing. They measure themselves by themselves. And they compare themselves among themselves. He says, they are not wise. Because they're missing the mark. And the Galatians had fallen into that trap of giving into a legalistic form of Christianity wherein they were judging each other and relating to each other completely in externals, ignoring the internal motivation of the heart. And they'd fallen into the practice of judging themselves by their intentions and judging others by their actions. Do you ever do that? I know I do. You know, I really intend to give that brother a call or to pay that sister a visit in the hospital or to pick up that thing that's lacking at the church that someone needs to take care of. I'm going to do it. And I intend to do it. I have every motivation in me that I want to do it. But for some reason or other, time catches up and things don't work out and it doesn't happen. And so I say, oh, you know, I didn't get to that, but at least I wanted to. But then I say, but you know, all those other people in church, they don't even try. No one else is doing anything. You see, I'm judging myself, wow, by my intentions. I am pretty good. But judging everybody else by their actions, not what they intend, but what they do, see. It should be the other way around. We should judge others by their intentions and judge ourselves by our actions, The way we look at other people would be a lot different, wouldn't it? And in the Galatian region, well, the effect that the legalizers had had upon them is that it not only affected their relationship with God, everything that Paul has shared with us thus far, but it was also destroying their relationship among themselves. Now, when a church or when an individual is completely trusting Christ, They're not practicing a legalistic form of Christianity. They're not assessing or evaluating the quality of their Christianity based on what they're doing outwardly, but they trust Jesus Christ. They know that their nature is is completely lacking in the ability to perform and to do the will of God, but they trust Him completely. They've tried in most cases to fulfill the will of God in their flesh and they've fallen flat on their face. In many instances, fallen directly upon the grace of God, you know. They've realized, they've tasted His goodness and they've realized that it was while we were His enemies that He died for us. They know that it is God that works in them to will and to do of His good pleasure and that it's God who's going to finish what He started in their lives. And they're not at all concerned about the externals, but they're completely trusting Christ to fulfill His work and His will within their lives. The result of that in a fellowship is that the people aren't concerned with what anyone else is doing. They're free to love them the same way that Christ loved us while we were his enemies, while we were in the furthest point from him is when he died for us. In the point when we were the most rebellious, it was then that he showed us his grace and his patience. And a person who has realized that then is able to deal with other people in the same way that they themselves have been dealt with by the Lord. And the whole purpose of Paul's letter writing to them is to bring them to this place of freedom in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 6, he answers the question, how the grace of God in my life affects my relationship with other Christians. And so, in these first few verses here, Paul gives to us four things to consider, four ways that the grace of God affects our relationship with other Christians. The first is given to us in verse 1, and that is how grace treats the sinning brother. Brethren, he says, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now he's dealing in this instant very obviously 
with someone in the church or in the assembly that has fallen into a sin or into a fault or has been found out or found to be tied up in some form of iniquity, something that would be branded by the Christian church as is damaging or detrimental to the, the Christian walk or to the, the church itself. And, and they're caught. They're called out. You are busted, you know, kind of a thing. And how do we now deal with that person, that brother that's been overtaken in this fault? Well, the first thing he tells us is that it's to be handled by those that are spiritual. He says, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. And that stands out because everything that Paul has been dealing with as we've gone through this is this contrast between those that are carnal and those that are spiritual. Now, those that are carnal or fleshly by contrast are those that deal with God according to the law. These are the ones that have been affected by the Judaizers, by the legalizers, that just as they did with Jesus, scrutinizing, watching everything he did, those that deal with God in the flesh carnally, they're concerned with laws, with what's right, with putting, bringing down the gavel and bringing forth a sentence and executing righteousness on the sinner. But Paul says it's not to even be handled by those people that have that mentality. But it shall be handled by those that are spiritual. Those that understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The patience and the grace that he, he delivers. It is them, those that are spiritual in the church. Those are they that deal with this. And then he tells us the action that is to be taken upon them. And notice this word. It's one of the most powerful words in all of the Bible. He says, restore. The action that is taken upon this sinning brother is that he is to be restored. The heart of God towards someone that sins or that's overtaken in a fault is always that they be restored. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam was forbidden from just one thing, and yet he was overtaken in the fault of disobeying God and partaking of that fruit, God didn't consign Adam and his descendants to hell forever, banishing his work within the human race, but he sought him in the garden, knowing full well what he did. And he said, Adam, where art thou? And upon the discovery or the uncovering of this fault that Adam had given himself to, what did the Lord do? Did he rebuke? Did he restrict? Did he you know, remove? Did he take away his love from Adam's life? No, the first thing he did is he restored him. It says that he sewed together fig leaves and he covered his transgression. And, and then he took a lamb and he killed it, you know, and, and covered him with the skins of that lamb, enacting, if you would, the greatest act of restoration that God would ever bring forth when he would send his son as the Lamb of God into the world to take away the sins of the world to restore mankind into a fellowship into a relationship with himself God's heart is to restore in Matthew chapter 18 Jesus told the story to again the Pharisees and he said listen if a man has a hundred sheep and he loses even just one if one goes astray will not that shepherd leave the ninety and nine and go and find that one that's gone astray. And then when he's found him, bring him back rejoicing. Why? Because that's the heart of God as the good shepherd. That he'll leave the 99 and he'll go after the one that's astray because it's a heart of restoration. Jesus again spoke of the prodigal son. A direct allusion to the heart of his father. That the one who goes astray, that finds himself lost and destitute. That upon one step back, the heart of God is that he will run out to him, throw his coat upon him, and welcome him back, and celebrate over the restoration of that which was lost, the redemption. We read of Peter, who three times denied Jesus Christ, probably one of the greatest sins a man can commit. And yet, what did Jesus do for the three times that Jesus was denied? Jesus asked Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my flock. He was restored. Why? Because that's the heart of God towards the sinner is restoration. Now, the contrast of that would be the Pharisee, the legalist, 
The person who demands justice, that righteousness, that the sentence be served, their action would never be restore. To them, the word would be, if any man be overtaken in a fault, rebuke such a one in a spirit of meekness. Rebuke him. Make sure that he is told that it is a transgression that he has entered in upon and that it doesn't go unnoticed and that he's in danger of his salvation. Or perhaps it would say, restrict such a one. That you can no longer occupy that place of membership within this church because of that sin that you've committed. Or perhaps it might say, remove that one. We deliver you unto Satan because of this thing that you've done and you will be removed from this fellowship for a time, not able to be a part of this group. That's not what Paul says. He says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. And that brings us to this third thing in this this section is that what's the attitude with which a person is to be restored? He says, in the spirit of meekness. Meekness means gentleness. It means power under control. I get the idea in my mind of Peter as he was walking out there upon the water and seeing the waves on his left hand and on his right, he began to sink. He was overtaken, if you would, in a fault. He was unbelieving there as he walked upon the water. And it says that Jesus, as Peter cried out, Jesus reached down with his hand and perfect power, yet under perfect control, lifted Peter back to the surface and brought him into the boat. Now, the opposite of meekness would be if perfect power took Peter and slung him 600 feet into the air. He could have done that. But he didn't. It was power, but it was under control. And that is exactly what meekness is. It's power, it's authority, but it's controlled, it's tempered. And he says the reason for that meekness is considering, he says, yourself, lest you also be tempted. The reason why a person is to restore in meekness is because of the weakness and frailty of all flesh, including the person who's doing the restoration. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It's one of the most troublesome, not troublesome, it's, it's, it can be troublesome, it's hard to understand. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And I can almost imagine Jeremiah as he's receiving from the Lord these words and he's writing them down and God says to him and he says, Jeremiah, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And I wonder if it was Jeremiah who said, comma, who can know it? Because we think of ourselves as pretty good. Again, we judge ourselves according to our intentions and not according to our actions. And if we're not oh so careful, we can begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. I think of Job, you know, he was a righteous man, the Bible tells us, but we find out he was righteous and also very religious. In chapter 13, Job says one of the most powerful things. I remember reading it as a young Christian. He says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And I said, God, give me that heart. But I missed the second half of the verse. Because in the second half of the verse, he says, yet I will maintain my own ways before him. Real good, real bad. <laughs> you know, listen, yeah, okay, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Yet I will maintain my ways. You're not seeing your heart, Job. You're not understanding what you really are. But Job's trial continues. And God accomplishes that which he was seeking to produce in Job's life. And in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, when it's all come to a conclusion, and Job learns the lesson, he says these words. He speaks to God, and he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor or hate, or am detested with myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. See, he had to learn the lesson that he wasn't righteous. I will maintain my ways before him. What will God accuse me of, he said. But he learned. I've heard of you at the hearing of the ear, but now I see you, I understand, I get it. I abhor myself, I see my heart, I understand its wickedness, and I repent in dust and ashes. Though all men deny you, Peter said, I will never deny you. Three times, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. 
Peter said, I will die first, Lord. I will not deny you. Peter didn't know the wickedness of his own heart. You know the story. What happened? Three times, Peter denied Jesus. And it was a little girl. It says a young damsel came and said, hey, you were with him. And he was, no, I wasn't. Real tough, you know, as she, you know, wielded the sword kind of a thing. Was she going to take his life? No, I wasn't with him, you know. See, when someone doesn't know their own heart, when they don't realize the wickedness that lies within it, then they don't know how to deal with the sins of someone else. They've never tasted the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the restoration of God that comes from realizing how wicked they themselves are. And that disqualifies them from dealing with someone else who is bound or caught up in a transgression. But when someone knows themselves, then they realize that no matter what that sinning brother is doing, they themselves are capable of doing the same thing. No matter how dark and demonic it might seem that that person is doing, listen, we are all capable of doing the same. But for the grace of God, there go I. This flesh is so rotten, it's so disgustingly sin-saturated, that if it weren't for the keeping power of God within our lives, we would all be lost, every single one of us. And it isn't until a person sees that and recognizes it that they are able to, in a spirit of meekness, restore someone who is overtaken in a fault in a spirit of meekness. It's so crucial that we see our own hearts, see? And it's only the grace of God that we've tasted in our lives ourselves that qualifies us to do that. And so Paul tells us, this is how grace handles a sinning brother. Not like the Pharisees, who demand that justice be served. But someone who's encountered Jesus Christ personally and knows the grace of God in truth. Second of all, Paul tells us how grace treats the burdened brother. Verse 2. He says, bear ye one another's burdens... And so fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes in life, we have a tendency as human beings to look across the room or look across, you know, the neighborhood or look across the aisle and look at someone else and we can begin to think, you know, if I had it like them, my life would be easier than it is. If only I had their money, my life would be easier. If only I had that person's health, you know, then I would be in a better position myself. Or if I had their job or their talent or that skill or whatever it is that we look across the room and we see someone else on the outside and we can begin to think if I could only have. But what they don't realize as they do that is that the person that they're looking at that maybe has the money or the job or the talent or the position or the skill, what they don't realize is that that person has an equal or greater amount of burden that you have. And that they are looking across the room or across the aisle or across the neighborhood at someone else and saying, if only I had, you know, the thing that they had, I would have. See, somebody might have the money, but yet they have a terrible marriage. Or someone else might have the the health physically, but they wrestle with depression and anxiety inwardly on a terrible scale wherein they can't even enjoy the physical health that they have. There might be someone who has a great job, a great position. They're set up real nice as it concerns earthly things. But you don't realize that that came with a coke addiction. What it took to earn that place or to climb to that level or whatever it is in that place. There might be someone that seems very self-confident, very sure of themselves, very able to conduct themselves, and they just have that presence about them that will take them anywhere. But you don't realize, just by looking at the outside, that inwardly they can't even sleep at night because they're so fearful or, or they're so anxious about you know, who, who knows even what, but they're just not even able to, to deal with what they really are on the inside. My wife says to me from time to time, she'll say, you know, Nick, and she she has said this to me. She said, sometimes I wish I had your mind until I see the trouble it causes you. (laughs) And I say, I just wish I was you, you know. (laughs) But I really believe that all of us 
have the same amount of burden, it's just spread out in a different way. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize somebody's trial or somebody's situation. There are seasons that we go through when it is unbearable. Paul himself said that we, when we were in Asia, we were pressed beyond measure above strength in so much that we despaired even of life. There are seasons and times when I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that on a general basis, we all have the same burden, amount. You know, it's spread out, it's put in different ways, but we all are bearing something, you see. And because we have a differing burden, perhaps, than someone else, the tendency that we have is to look at someone else and what they're going through and to despise their burden. We say, well, why are they like that? You know, they, they're just annoying. You know, they're always complaining or they're always, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Why are they like that? Or we'll ignore someone else's burden. We know that they're under a financial strain or that they're in that position, but we'll ignore it because, well, you know, I got my own things to deal with and, you, you know, so I'm just going to just pretend that it doesn't exist. But Paul here, as he conducts, you know, their behavior or gives to them these things, he says, bear ye one another's burdens. That is to bear it. Bear one another's burdens. Now, now, what does that mean? Let me read on so that we can understand what he's talking about. He says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Now we'll come back and talk about those verses, but look at verse 5. He says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, you know, at first you think, well, wait a minute, Paul, which is it? Is it bear one another's burdens or every man will bear his own burden? Because it sounds like you're uh, saying two different things between verse 2 and verse 5. So what's the story with this? Here's what it is. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. What he's saying is that every man, every woman, every person is going to have a burden to bear. We all have problems. It's just part of being on earth, you know. And if you don't have a problem now, you're going to next week, you know. Because it, it, somebody said one time that, that, that every Christian is in one of three places. You're either going into a trial, you're either in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. But you're always in one of those three places. And doesn't it seem that way, you know. We all have problems and so what Paul is saying is, is that in light of the fact that we all have got issues, things to bear, he's saying bear with it. Bear with one another in the burdens that they are carrying. Bear with the burdens that your brothers and sisters have. Don't despise it or despise them because of what they're going through. Don't ignore it. Don't train them to pretend like it doesn't exist because you don't want to be around them because of the issues that they're facing. But he's saying, he's challenging them, he's saying, love them in the position or in the situation, in the difficulty that they're in. The person that wrestles with depression, don't look at him and say, stop, just cut it out, just be thankful, you know, because people do that sometimes, they're despising the burden that someone else is under. They've never wrestled with that or felt that. They don't listen. Even doctors don't understand depression. They just go, "Here, take some pills. Which ones do you want? You know, try something. Let me throw a prescription at this thing." Oftentimes, making it work worse because they don't understand even the very nature of it. And yet, God, in His sovereignty, yet remains upon the throne with one hand on the thermometer and the other hand on the thermostat. And he uses these things in our lives that to us we don't understand. We don't know why he's doing it. But he's bringing forth his purpose and his cause within our lives. And we're to love one another in the trials and the, the struggles that we face. And not to hate one another or to despise the thing that people are under. It's interesting to me to consider that even Jesus, the captain of our salvation... The weight of his cross was too heavy for him to carry alone in his earthly strength. A man named Simon was bidden from the crowd to come and to bear the weight of that cross under even the back of the one who was dying for the sins of mankind. And God has designed it to be such in our lives from time to time that the things that we are under are greater than what we can carry alone. 
And God has given to us the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to bear under with us the burdens that we carry. And for us to despise those things or to make someone feel inferior because they're going through them or to subtly train them to just turn a blind eye, pretend it's not there because you're bothering everybody with it. It's unrealistic. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Paul says. That's what we're to do. It's how we're to handle it. The third thing that Paul brings out in this section of how grace handles is how grace handles the prideful brother. Look again, verse 3. He says, For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. I was talking with a brother a couple of weeks ago in the solid ground after a service. And we were talking about just the Christian life and just how crazy it can be from time to time. And I I said to him, I said, you know, the Christian life is like a man who walks into a room. And, and, and that's his room. Like, that's where he lives. And, and so he's in that room. And, and, and first coming into it, he's overwhelmed. But after a while, he kind of figures out the, the, the setting and the layout of the room. He sees the, the furnishings and, you know, the, the things that are around him. He gets comfortable with the environment and the, the way the room works and the controls and the type of people and the standards. And, and he just gets real familiar in this room. And, and after a while, he grows kind of comfortable. He says, yeah, you know, I got this thing kicked. I, I kind of figure out this whole Christian thing. But then as God leads him on, he finds that there's a door on the other side of the room. And God says, I want you to come through this door. And so the man will go through the door and he'll come into a new room, a larger room that's furnished completely different, totally different colors, a totally different atmosphere, a totally different crowd of people. It seems as though everything in this room is just brand new and nothing that I learned in the last one really applies here. It's just a whole new thing. But he spends some time in that room and he sees the furnishings and he, you know, he interacts with the, the, the environment there and he gets used to it after a while and says, okay, I can do this. I got this. Okay, yeah, this Christian thing, uh, you know, it's different here, but I, I'm getting this. I'm getting it. He spends some time there and then the Lord says, hey, go through that door. And on and on it goes until finally one day he opens the door for the last time. And he comes into a room so large, so big, so expanse from anything that he's ever seen before that he just throws up in his hands, forget it. I'm not even going to try to figure this out anymore. And in many ways, that's what the Christian life is like. You know, we start off on our walk. And, and you know, we fellowship, we, we start to read the Bible, we learn about sin and, you know, we're getting victory over it, and we kind of beat those big ones, we stop cursing and drinking and smoking, and we, we, you know, we get through that kind of a thing, we go, all right, I got this Christian thing down. And then God says, now come through this door, and it's a whole new thing. Whatever that is for you, you know, however God leads you, you know, Christianity, all of a sudden it just got bigger. And everything that you thought you had figured out, you begin to realize, well, maybe I don't have that figured out quite so much, but I'll deal with what's going on here. And the longer you walk with the Lord, it seems like the room, at some point, it just gets so big, you go, you know what, I have no clue what I'm doing at all. I thought at the beginning I had this whole Christian thing figured out, but you know what, I don't have a clue, you know. It reminds me of that scene from the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy, you know, the young girl who they're just always wanting to come into contact with Aslan, the lion who represents Christ. And having gone a space in her journey without seeing him, she sees him from there across this little water brook. And, and she, she sees him. She says, Aslan. And then she goes, have you grown? You just seem so big. And he looks back across the room and he says, no, Lucy, I haven't grown at all. But the more you grow, the bigger I will seem to you. And isn't that true in the Christian experience? You know, we we think we understand Christ. We think we understand and know him. But we come to this thing where we continue to grow. And the more we grow, the bigger he gets. The more mysterious, the more unfathomable, the more unsearchable he becomes. The more we grow in our relationship with him. 
And that's what Paul is alluding to here as he says to these people, listen, if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He just hasn't been walking long enough to realize that he's nothing. That he's so small, so insignificant, yet loved. But yet he knows absolutely nothing at all. So interesting, this paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? That the more you grow the smaller you become. Paul the Apostle, early in his ministry, a humble man, he said, you know what? I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Humble, the least of the apostles. But then he walked with the Lord for a while. And he wrote again and he said, you know what? I'm less, not the least of the apostles, but I am less than the least of all the saints. I'm nothing. I mean, you put me against any other Christian and I am nothing. I'm just dark, humble. Then he walked with the Lord for a while more. Near the ending of his life, as he wrote to young Timothy, he called himself by something completely different. Not the least of the apostles, not less than the least of all the saints, but he said, I am the chief of sinners. That the more mature he became in the things of God, the less he became in his own estimation. The more he grew, the shorter he was. That's the way it works in this whole Christian life. Now, typically, when a person, a man, a woman, a youth, or whatever, thinks themselves to be something in this Christian life or in the Christian world, it's because they're comparing themselves with other people and not with Christ alone. And that's why in verse 4, Paul says, but let every man prove his own work. Now, the only legitimate way to prove or to test yourself concerning your spiritual height or maturity is to compare yourself with Christ. You cannot get an accurate evaluation of how spiritually mature you are by comparing yourself to someone else. It's impossible because we can only see the outward. We can't see the heart, and so it's impossible. The only way for us to legitimately prove our quality is to compare ourselves with Christ. And what happens when we do that? We become about this big, right? Because who are we when we compare ourselves with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Righteousness? The one who's coming in clouds and has a sword coming out of his mouth and it's written on his thigh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're nothing. The only way to legitimately prove is as we compare ourselves to him. And then what happens is that we realize that we are miserable failures. That we fall so incredibly short of his glory, of his righteousness, of his standard, yet... He still loves me. That even though I'm less than the least of the saints, even though I'm the chief of sinners, even though I can't even come close to measuring up in the smallest area of my life, yet he still loves me. And what does that cause within me? Well, Paul says, then will he have rejoicing in himself alone. How can you have rejoicing when you fail so miserably? Because you realize that the one who's judging you isn't angry at you. He's not looking at you condescendingly. He's not scrutinizing your behavior and saying, try harder next time, kid. But you see that there's eyes of grace. His eyes are as a flame of fire. There's acceptance in his presence. He's willing to help. He's willing to lift you up to carry you. And then you have rejoicing because you're free. I'm nothing. And yet he loves me. I don't need anything else. Now, pride, what Paul is dealing with here, the prideful brother, is a very interesting thing. Because pride is the only sin that a man can have that everybody else knows that he has it except for him. It's visible to everybody else, but the person who possesses it, they don't see it. See? And that brings us back to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Because sometimes it can be very frustrating, can't it, to be around someone who's got that high and holy look on their face, right? Just wait. God knows how to pull the rug out. Just bear one another's burdens. And so just smile and, yep, 
I'm a sinner. You're right. <laughs> you know, I don't measure up, you know. Paul goes on and he talks about how grace, number four, if you're taking notes, how grace deals with the learning brother. Verse six, he says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. The word communicate there that the King James uses in the Greek, it means to partner with or to share with. Typically, it's looked upon as to support financially or to, you know, partner with in in that sense of supporting that person within their ministry. And then he says to do that in every good thing. Now, it is true that the most enjoyed Sunday afternoon meal, the thing that people enjoy the most when they partake of that Sunday afternoon meal is roast preacher. They usually have it on the way home from church. Did you hear what he said today? Do you realize how long he talked for? I couldn't sit there for one minute longer. He wouldn't shut his mouth, you know. Why doesn't he wear a t-shirt? Do we all want to see the sweat, you know, or something, you know? Why why are you laughing? What I can say from the teacher's perspective is that what goes into teaching a session or preparing a sermon from a preacher's perspective, from a teacher's perspective, is 95% invisible and only 5% visible. Conversely, from the congregation's perspective, a sermon, a teaching that's delivered, is 95% invisible and only No, 95% visible and only 5% visible. It's a complete flip-flop. See, because what you see is just simply the delivering of it and not anything that went into the preparing of it or the teaching of the actual thing. And when you only consider from a, you know, perspective of, of, of hearing it that much, you fail to consider that, well, first of all, the severity of what's happening. I mean, I realize that when I come up here and I open up the Bible and I begin to teach it to you, I'm speaking for God. That's severe. Because you don't want to speak for God and say the wrong thing. You get in trouble for that. I don't know how many people are here tonight, but consider it this way. If I talk for an hour, and and I'm not going to talk for an hour, I don't think. I think I'm going to actually beat that. But if I did, however many people are here tonight, If I come here and I didn't prepare, I just wasted that many hours of God's time. I don't want to answer for that. That's severe. That's a big deal. The Bible says, be not many teachers because we will receive the stricter judgment. You don't realize that God gets after those that speak in his name more so than he does someone else. You don't realize the warfare that goes on in the mind of someone who teaches the Bible to others. It can be intense sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I have two demons, one on this shoulder and one on this shoulder. And one of them whispers in this ear and he says, you are amazing. And then this one whispers on this ear and he goes, you are a piece of garbage. And that can go on for hours. No, Lord, please, just, ah, you know. You don't realize sometimes the warfare that can come because of, you know, what you're doing. You're teaching people the Bible, the Word of God. You don't realize the agony that can come when you step down from teaching God's Word and realize that you completely blew it. That that could have been so much more powerful, that God could have done so much more, and it was your frailty, your failure that limited him. That, you know, now you can argue with it and say, no, 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 the, yes, the word doesn't, but that feeling is still there that you go through. And because of the severity of the ministry of teaching the Bible, and because of the high visibility that's involved in it, it is necessary that God keeps his ministers humble that he keeps his ministers low. It's got to be because of the severity of the thing. Paul describes his own course as one that is paved. And he's speaking of himself. Paul said that his course was paved with infirmities, with reproaches, with necessities, with persecutions, with distresses. 
He speaks of the thorn that was given to him in his flesh. He calls it the messenger of Satan. Now, some people say Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He couldn't see good. No, no, no. Paul says the thorn in my flesh was a messenger from Satan that was sent to constantly buffet me. And so harsh was that buffeting that three times I besought the Lord, Lord, please take this from me. God said, no, Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul said, in every city, bonds and afflictions await him. That was the course that he paid. Why? He was Paul. He was bearing fruit for God. Why should it be that his course was paved with that much affliction and that much distress? Because it's essential that a man who teaches the Bible not be lifted up with pride and to begin to think that he's something or that he's important or that God needs him or that it's him that's doing it in any respect. And because Paul understood the severity of the ministry and the accompanying difficulty that came with it, he says to those who are taught in the word to communicate with him that teacheth in all good things. In other words, Make their job as easy as you can from the physical standpoint. Those that are taught, do what you can to make their lives easier. And so Paul gives to these Christians four ways how grace responds in relating to each other on a fellowship basis. First of all, he says this is how grace handles the sinning brother, how it handles the burdened brother, how it handles the prideful brother, and how grace handles the learning brother. So, how does a church, in closing, see the effect of grace and the fruit of love take place within their lives or in their church? Because Paul was writing to a church that was completely messed up. They were turned totally upside down. This was not their reality. They were biting, devouring one another. They were consuming one another, envying, provoking. It was the complete antithesis of everything that he just said. So how does a church go from one that is outward, hypocritical, and carnal to one that is fruitful, spiritual, and real? How does that happen? Well, Paul says this, verse 7. He says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. See, it's not maybe something that happens overnight, but it's the law of sowing and reaping. Where you put your energy, where you put your effort, where you put your emphasis in a personal situation or in a church setting, that is going to be the outcome. And he says, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul is saying that the key to spiritual victory, whether it be an issue in your own life as it concerns your relationship with God, or whether it be in your relationships with others as it concerns the fellowship of the church, The key to spiritual victory in that is that we sow to the Spirit. That we give ourselves to be spiritual people. That we not rely upon the outward, the physical, the appearance, the law, and all that we've seen. But that we give ourselves completely to the grace and the power of God's Spirit to live through us and to work these things out in our lives and in our fellowships. You are either sowing to the carnal legal, religious, outward within your lives. Or you're sowing to the spiritual, personal relationship that you can have with Christ. The byproduct of sowing to the flesh is going to be a carnal, sinful, bitter religion. But the outcome of sowing to the Spirit is that there's going to be increased intimacy with Jesus Christ within your life, both with you and Him and both as it concerns your fellowship with others. That all of the blessings of the Christian life are going to be a reality to you. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul described in chapter 5 verse 22 is going to be born in your hearts and worked out through your lives. And that your fellowship with each other is going to be based upon the foundation of love and not the law. And Paul concludes this section in verse 10 by saying, As we have therefore, In light of all of this, 
opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now next week we'll conclude the book of Galatians and we'll look at kind of, not an overview, but we'll sum up what Paul is seeking to communicate and get across in a way wherein it hopefully will take us there rather than just give us an understanding of it mentally. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that it's so thorough, it's so complete, it just makes so much sense to us. And we just ask tonight, Father, that you would take the things that we have heard and that you would just show us in our heart what, what it was, Lord, that you would have us to understand personally. Lord, where perhaps we have judged other people in an unfair way, considering only the outward and ignoring the motivation. Or where we've been perhaps agitated with someone's burden or personality and have fallen short of loving that person unconditionally with your love. We just pray that tonight, whatever it is that you have shown us, that you would give us the strength to turn from it or turn to you, and you'd strengthen those things within us that are of you, and that you'd put to death those things that are of us, the flesh, the outward carnality. We trust in you to give us wisdom and to move us forward in our Christian experience. We thank you so much for your love. We ask you to be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.